Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com/fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Much of the western United States right now is under extreme drought conditions. Watering restrictions are already being established in many places. If this is the new normal and you want to landscape in the future... Well, low-water-use plants, especially native plants, might be part of your new yard. But just because they will eventually become able to thrive with less water, they will still need regular watering after planting for a short time. Today, we talk about the watering precautions necessary when putting in low-water-use plants. And the plant of the week is a plant that does its best in poor soil, and it puts on a show for an extended period throughout its wide-growing region. It's the smoke tree. Plus, we're talking about the best tart cherry varieties to plant. It's all on episode 111 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. There's a lot of interest these days about growing low water use plants, native plants, plants that don't require much water once they're established. And that is the key. Establishing a native plant or a low water use plant before you turn off the water. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm, belonged <laughs> to Debbie Flower, yes. retired college horticultural professor here at the uh, Barking Dog Studios with us today. Mm-hmm. A lot of people make the mistake when they go to a nursery, they might buy a, a perfectly good low water use plant thinking, oh, it doesn't require much water. I can just stick this in the ground, walk away, and it'll do fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. 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 No, it won't. That was uh, something that I did a lot of reading about while I was doing my master's thesis at UC Davis. And there was uh, somebody else's PhD thesis that I was reading uh, about just exactly that. Taking a plant, putting it in the ground from a container, put it, planting it into the landscape, and how do you water it so it will survive? When do the roots get established? So let's think about that plant that we just purchased. It's in a container of some sort, and that container contains media of some sort. Everybody's mix is different. There are as many container media mixes as there are people mixing. But in general, they are very high in organic matter and very open to allow water and oxygen to penetrate them and the roots to grow. We are going to put that medium with the roots of the plant into our field soil, which is very low in organic matter. If you have 2 to 5% organic matter in your field soil, that's about normal. If you've used mulch for many years and it's broken down, it might go up as high as 10%. But in the landscape, that's about as high as you're going to get it. In the container, it's 50%, maybe more than that. So this change in, in texture between the container soil and the field soil creates a problem for water movement. The plant has all its roots in the container soil. It's been living in the container. It's been watered in the container. It's been fertilized in the container. Now you're going to put that into the ground for, it came out to be about six weeks. These were one gallon plants in that, that I was reading about in that PhD thesis. For about six weeks, you need to water the container soil itself. 
It's in the ground now, but you have to get the water directly into that container media very frequently. In a hot California summer, it can be daily. It can be twice a day. So it depends where you are, how hot it is, whether you've had any rain. But you need to get water to that container soil very, very frequently for the first six weeks. And then in those six weeks, you water the field soil around the plant once a week. That's a difficult situation to create. I did create it when I was working on my thesis. We actually cut the tops off of one-gallon pots and made little collars around the uh, planted one-gallon plants. And those collars were raised above ground so we could, and pu but pushed into the ground as well, so that we could water directly into that container media and it wouldn't flow out into the field soil. At home, I don't do that. At home, I plant the plant and I lay out a sprinkler of some sort or a soaker hose, set it to a timer on a hose bib and have it go off every day, every other day, depending on the weather and water that plant for about six weeks. And then I'll, I don't just take it away. I'll move it away, further away from the plant. The thesis said that I read said the roots of the one gallon container plants had grown into the field soil after six weeks. So all of a sudden, these plants were able to take moisture up from the field soil, but they couldn't do it before that. And so you you have to create the conditions where you're not saturating the plant, not getting too much water into the container soil but you're or into the field soil, but you're getting enough that the plant doesn't die. So it sounds like a spiral of a uh, soaker hose, for example, that starts off basically around that uh, root ball of the plant and then spirals out a little bit more and a little bit more would be the ideal way for moistening. Or maybe it would take two soaker hoses right. with, with the one closest to the plant being on more frequently than the outer one. Right. And I'm typically planting into a bed that already has uh, irrigation that comes on. Actually, sometimes it doesn't come on except once every two weeks. And so I'm using the soaker hose. I just string it around from plant to plant. If I've planted a lot of little plants, mm -hmm. then I'll move it from plant to plant and keep it very close to the base of the plant because that's where the media, the container media is. Uh, yes, I'm watering some field soil in between, but there is drier field soil around that plant. And then it gets its usual irrigation uh, once a week or once every two weeks, depending on what bed I've put it in. I would think a couple of other strategies for putting in low water use plants would be the timing of this. And that timing could include not only uh, the time of the year, but the time of the day that mm -hmm. you would put these plants in. I will have plants and wait and check the weather. I'll have plants in pots that I've purchased. I have some right now. And I'll check the weather until there's a cooler day. Now, it's we're in the heat of summer, so that's not real frequent, but a cooler day, and I'll often plant in the evening when the direct sun is not so strong. And another thing I do, I, this sounds very odd, I've never seen anyone else do it, but I'll make little paper hats. <laughs> <laughs> well. Out of newspaper, or if you have the uh, some large piece of paper, shape them, you just use scotch tape, make a little hat, and anchor them with uh, irrigation line anchors, those metal hooks. Mm -hmm. And yes, they turn brown and they start to rip. But the first few days when that plant is, is out of the container, it was grown in a field and it was totally surrounded by other container plants that were about the same size. So the wind was low on that plant. It may have been grown in partial shade. Many 
growing facilities are in partial shade because the plants grow better. Now you're taking it away from all those other plants. It's totally exposed on all sides to the sun and the wind, and it's not under shade or it's probably under less shade than it was in its growing grounds. So it has to adjust to all these changes in its environment. So putting that little paper cap on it helps it eliminate some of those things that, that are hard for that plant to deal with. And the paper doesn't last very long. And when it starts to shred and blow around the garden, I go out and throw it away. And that's as long as it stays on the plant. But it, I find it very helpful. I did it to a ceanothus that I planted in summer, and it worked very well, both the the soaker hose and the little paper hat. Cianoth is also known as California lilac is notorious for hating summer water once yes. it's established. It, it needs to be off on its own circuit away from other plants that are getting regular water, definitely, for it to have a, a long life. And frankly, the Cianothus in California, 10, 15 years probably is their life. If they're irrigated, yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, so, so yeah, it sounds counterintuitive to do this, yeah. to water a Cianothus after you've planted it. However... You've often preached of the benefits of moistening the soil before you plant. Mm -hmm. Will you water thoroughly the area before you put in a low water use plant? I don't. I water the container mm -hmm. to make sure that, that water has gotten all the way to the bottom of that container so the plant has something to live on when I put it in these very difficult situations, meaning increased light, increased wind, and new media. But I, I do not irrigate the whole that is recommended by many people, however. Including you. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that's when I go from container to container. Right. I absolutely, yes, I use moist media. I water what's in the container and I water what I'm putting it into because the container media it can contain, often contains peat moss, which is incredibly difficult to wet. But landscape soil, it varies all over the world. So I can't say anything general except that it typically does not contain peat moss. Mm -hmm. Peat moss is a particular problem to get it to wet. And so that's why I, I always use moist container media. And you've gotten me into the habit now of using my five-gallon buckets to pre-moist any potting soil that I may be thinking of using that day. Is just putting the amount of uh, potting mix that I think I'll be using into a big bucket, topping that with water. And letting it sit there while I go do other things and then come back and uh, take that moist soil and put it in the container for uh, replanting something. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think for container media, it's critical. Field soil, not, not as much. The other thought, too, about putting in low water use plants to reduce the stress is maybe plant in fall when the days yes. are cooler and the soil temperature is still warm and uh, the weather is just more mild. It's much easier to do to plant in fall. And I prefer to plant in fall. The reason I don't always do it is that the plants aren't that I want aren't always available in fall. Right. Having worked at nurseries, wholesale and retail and and with students at the school uh, growing grounds, you don't want to go through the winter with a lot of plants material in containers. It takes a lot of labor and it, water and water and they can be persnickety. Some don't want water in winter and mm. some do. And, and it just creates a lot of work. And so the tendency is for nurseries to let their stock quantity decline as you go into the fall so that they don't have to tend these plants in the winter. So it's sometimes harder to find what you want in fall. If only you people would just pay attention to all the signs you see in front of nurseries every September that say fall is for planting. Yes. We wouldn't have this issue. Yes. Yes. It's all supply and demand, really. All right. So we've uh, established 
a low water use plant. We've well, we've planted it. Adding mulch does that help? I always try to mulch up to the container soil, not over the container soil, and that helps keep as you say repeatedly. Do not mulch right up to the right. base of the plant. And so, if you only go up to the container soil, and that goes back to another another bypass, <laughs> when you plant container soil grown plants into the landscape, you do you plant them. It's called planting proud. If someone is proud, they stand up tall. And so you want the container soil out of the ground, out of the field soil for a one gallon plant as much as an inch. Really? An inch? Yes. Of that container soil sticking out of the landscape soil once you've planted it. A couple of reasons for that. One, if you dug the hole really deep and had to fill it back in, there's air in that media, that, that landscape soil that's underneath the pot and that's going to settle and the plant will go down. If you dug it exactly the right depth, good for you. But you still want the media to stick out because the media itself is full of organic matter. It will break down over time and that plant will settle. And if it's set, once it settles, if it's below field soil, all the water will flow to it and you're likely to drown the plant. And I have drowned them. I've done it. You're planted proud. You've got that container media sticking out mulch right up to it. The other thing to consider, too, when planting low water use plants is, as we've alluded to, they don't like a lot of water no, they once don't. they're established. So think about where you're going to be planting them. Is it in a low moist area? Maybe you don't want to put it there. Right. Maybe you want to put it at the top of a slope or even in a raised bed. Yes. Yes. Or you can create the cenothus I've had success with most recently is on a mound. And so I, I am it's still got the uh, soaker hose running past it and it's doing very well. I have another cenothus I want to plant in a different location that is not mounded. But I will put some field soil there to create a mound. That's another option. How do you keep the sides together on a mound? Well, you have to slope it gently. Mm, okay. And so the eventual height of that mound would be about eight inches or so? Well, I don't think I'll go that high. I think I'll just go three or four mm-hmm. and then plant proud in that mound. That mound will settle. Anytime you move soil, you've added oxygen to it and it settles over time. So I may end up with only a two-inch mound. But it's still higher than the field soil around it. Mm -hmm. And that soil, because you've made it quite wide, Mm -hmm. actually can act as a mulch, too. Right. But I will mulch around it, too. All right. Okay. Have we established uh, those low water use plants? Let's see. We planted them. We we put in the irrigation. We mulched them. After six weeks, we take the irrigation off, and then you can go to low water use irrigation. Oh, listen, I hear a voice saying, how much is that? (laughs) That depends. That's another topic. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I think we have. Okay. All right. So uh, low water use plants, uh, you can save money. Mm -hmm. But you got to pay attention when you plant them to get them established. Debbie Flower, thanks so much for your help on this. Thank you. My pleasure. You've heard me talk about Smart Pots, the award-winning fabric planter here on the Garden Basics podcast. They're durable and reusable. I've been using mine for five years now, and once again, they're being pressed into service in my yard. Yeah, I have this problem. I, I grow too many tomatoes for the amount of allotted sunny space I have for them. So those extra tomato plants go into the Smart Pots. I place them in scattered areas around the yard where I know they'll get enough sun which is a premium in my yard. 
And even five years later, I can pick up those smart pots, plant and all, and move them around without fear of the smart pot tearing or ripping. SmartPot's breathable fabric creates a healthy root structure for plants. And SmartPots come in a wide variety of sizes and colors. Visit SmartPots.com Fred for more information about the complete line of SmartPots lightweight fabric containers. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details of discounts where you can buy SmartPots at Amazon. Okay, now I understand maybe you want to see the SmartPots before you buy them. That's not a problem. SmartPots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit SmartPots.com slash Fred. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics Podcast. If you have a question, there's a lot of ways to get in touch. You can leave an audio question without making a phone call via SpeakPipe at speakpipe.com slash gardenbasics. If you want to talk into a telephone, you can do that too. 916-292-8964. 916-292-8964. You can text us at that number as well. Leave some pictures if you'd like. Email, sure. Send it to fred at farmerfred.com, or you can leave a question at the Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram locations for uh, the Garden Basics and Farmer Fred. And we get a question from Indiana, southern Indiana to be exact, from Rachel. And Rachel writes in, Hi, Fred. I would like to plant a few tart cherry trees on my property this year. I'm a beginner at this, so I'm looking for recommendations on what tree would be the most disease and pest resistant. Is there such a thing? We live in southern Indiana in USDA Zone 6B. Thank you. And thank you, Rachel, for including your USDA zone and the approximate location where you live, because that helps us answer garden questions. We like to bring in the pros from Dave Wilson Nursery to help us out with the fruit tree questions. We're talking with Phil Purcell. And Phil, Tart cherry trees, uh, very popular uh, back east and in the Midwest, and they're excellent for cooking, aren't they? They are, as far as, you know, especially like for pies and such. I mean, that is what you would use as opposed to a sweet cherry. You'd go with the tart cherries. All right. And uh, according to Purdue University, uh, tart cherries are about all they recommend for uh, most of Indiana, except for some parts, I guess, of southern Indiana that don't have quite as cold temperatures. They can grow sweet cherries. But tart cherries are the uh, cherry of choice uh, for Indiana. And I, according to Purdue, they're saying that there is one variety that does quite well there, and it happens to be a, a rather big staple in, in the Dave Wilson lineup. Yeah, so Montmorency is the number one planted tart cherry tree uh, in the country. And it's just because it produces a very large, you know, flavorful cherry that is very uh, productive and you can count on the crop every single year. Boy, the fruit is large. It's got a medium red color. It's tart. It's firm. And the juice is clear. Uh, it can be a big tree, though, but I would imagine just like in California, in Indiana, you could keep that tree at a reasonable height. You can. Tart cherries are mostly planted on standard rootstocks because the tree itself is naturally dwarfing. Montmorency would be considered a semi-dwarf tree on a standard rootstock. So that being said, they don't get out of hand like a sweet cherry can, but you can still keep it down to an easy, anywhere from 8 to 12 foot 
uh, size and just get plenty of cherries off of it. I see that it's recommended for a wide variety of, of U.S. zones, USDA zones four through nine. And uh, I guess, too, it's self-fruitful. So basically, one tree would do it. Would you get more cherries if you planted two? Yeah, generally speaking, if you with uh, you know most fruit, if you add another variety in there and cross pollinize it, you do you definitely do increase the uh, the fruit production on uh, both trees. Like you say, the uh, the sour cherries are unique, where all the varieties are self fertile. So if you only have room for one tree, then uh, you don't have to worry about it like some of the uh, the sweet cherries that need cross pollinizers. So another variety that you may want to plant with in order to get an even bigger crop, and I see Purdue recommends it, and it's a part of the uh, Dave Wilson uh, family of tart uh, cherry trees, and that's the North Star. Yeah, so the North Star is uh, is a you know much more dwarfing tree, and in areas, especially like in northern Indiana, that can have a harsh winter. The North Star is you know even more of a hardy tree than uh, the Montmorencias. Then there's also uh, a favorite, especially for people who are making their own wines, is the English Morello. And out here in California, we're finding that that variety is starting to really gain popularity because of, uh, you know, different cultures making a very uh, unique wine out of it. These sour cherries are super adaptable in, in climates. So they're a lot like uh, you know persimmons, where you can grow them in down in Southern California, and you can grow them in the cold country. And I would think that growing cherry trees in Indiana is much the same as growing them here. You need good drainage. You do. One thing that that cherry trees must have is good drainage. It's uh, cherry rootstocks can suffer from root rot. And uh, so that's the one one thing. If you have a wet area in your yard, it's probably best to find another location for that cherry tree. And if you don't have it, and that's the only location you have, then definitely what you want to do is uh, plant that cherry on a mound so that it can get established and it's not setting in wet soils. Yeah, mound or a raised bed. Mounds may be 8 inches high. Raised beds are usually 12 to 16 inches high, but that will certainly give you good drainage. Yes, it will. Yep. All right. We learned a lot about sour tart cherries today, especially for southern Indiana. Rachel, hope that helps. I hope you enjoy the Montmorency cherry. If you want more information about growing cherry trees, visit DaveWilson.com and check out their wonderful fruit tube video series on YouTube as well. Phil Purcell, Dave Wilson Nursery, thanks for helping us out here. Thanks a lot for having me. Are you thinking of growing fruit trees? Well, you probably have a million questions, like which fruit trees will grow where I live? What are the tastiest fruits? How do I care for these trees? The answers are nearby. They're just a click away. With the informative Fruit Tube video series at DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest grower of fruit trees for the backyard garden. They've got planting tips, taste test results, links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com.
every week, we like to talk with Warren Roberts out of the University of California Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. He is their superintendent emeritus. He knows his plants, and he always picks out a great plant of the week for us. And this week, Warren, it, it is one of my favorites, and it is truly adaptable throughout most of the United States. Is it a tree? Is it a shrub? I don't know, but it sure puts on a show for a long time. It's uh, the Cotinus, the smoke tree. Yes, that would be Cotinus. There are two species. The main species grown is called Cotinus cogzigria, <laughs> which is an odd pronunciation, but especially it's spelled C-O-G-G-Y-G-R-I-A. And evidently it's from the Greek kokigia, uh, which was uh, the name used by Theophrastus. So even though it seems like an odd name, it has it has classic roots. Wow. Yeah, I've always called it Kajigria. Uh, pronounce it again correctly so I can impress my friends. <laughs> well, it's, you know, if, if someone should correct your pronunciation of botanical name, the knowing smile is the way to go. <laughs> but anyway, I, I learned it as Cotinus Cogzigria. I don't know where the Z comes in, but anyway, that's how I learned it. Wow. And it's uh, called it's called the smoke tree. The first time I saw it was um, in garden in the garden of relatives in in uh, Chelmsford, Massachusetts, and they called it the smoke tree. But I, as a Californian, knew smoke tree to be Dahlia spinosa or Sporothamnus spinosus, which is in the pea family, and it looks like smoke too. The whole plant does, and that was and that's a common plant in washes in the western deserts. But my, my uh, relatives assured me that this was a smoke tree, and um, that, that was the uh, old-fashioned, regular green leaf form, but uh, very impressive, even at that. The, the development of the species, of the species horticulturally, um, I read that in about 1914 in England, the purple-leafed form was discovered since then, darker purple forms have, have been selected, and uh, so the leaves are purple. But the main effect to me, well, it's hard to say which is the main effect, but this cloud-like inflorescence of tiny flowers on little thin stems making a smoke-like appearance. The, these, these purple leaf forms have really magnificent red clouds of flowers. It's it's really stunning. I, I there's nothing really quite like it. There, they also in areas with colder uh, winters, it can give you good fall color. I'm told. Yes, no, I, I've that, seen it here with great fall color too. At any rate, these purple leafed and purple flowered forms are certainly are certainly uh, worthwhile growing. Cotinus cogzigria is native to. The Balkan region and adjacent Asia, that's kind of where it's from. And from then, it's it's moved in, in cultivation throughout much of the world, actually. Uh, but there is also an American species, uh, Cotinus abovatus, native to the southeastern U.S. I think when we discuss horse chestnut trees, the, the buckeyes, there's a, a, a relationship there. In the Balkans is the horse chestnut. And in the Americas, you have the, these other buckeyes, and hybrids are made between those, as in the, in the case of the smoke tree, hybrids have been made between the Cotinus abovatus and Cotinus cogzigria. And there's a selection called grace. Cotinus grace is a hybrid 
uh, between the two species. And I don't know why it's called grace because it's not very graceful. <laughs> we have, I have experience with several of them. But if the cotinus is awkward looking, just prune it a bit. It responds well to pruning. The American species is called American smoke tree. It's also called chittim wood or yellow wood. Mm. Um, and it can, it can be up to, uh, the record is 54 feet high. Cotinus coxigria, the record there in the U.S. at least, is about 30 feet, 35 feet high. So both of these are large are large shrubs, and they are deciduous. They lose the leaves in the winter, but they're certainly worth growing. And these uh, uh, really rich-colored uh, cultivars are, are, are really worth searching out and planting in your garden. Yeah, the Cotinus cogsigria uh, typically here gets maybe 15 to 25 feet tall. It, it's more shrub-like. Mm-hmm than you know a massive tree but it the, that the smoke though how beautiful is that the dramatic puffs of smoke from the fading flowers and they last they last months they're gorgeous they really are it's, it's a favorite of mine it's the smoke tree warren roberts superintendent emeritus of the uc davis arboretum and public garden thanks so much for telling us about the cotinus cogsigria cogs let me do that again the cotinus cogsigria there we go and you can find out more <laughs> when you visit the arboretum at arboretum.ucdavis.edu warren thanks so much i'm glad to have been able to share this enthusiasm with you I thought for sure you'd say, I was glad to blow some smoke your way. (laughs) Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday and is brought to you by Smart Pots. It's available just about anywhere, and that includes Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for Northern California gardeners, it's the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred. It's available also wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. And thanks for listening.